Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. We've got a lot to pack in today, and so we're going to be jumping around to a few really interesting topics. Um, first one, we're going to be talking about Can Lions and their decision to go all virtual for the second year in a row after many decades of being held in the south of France. Then we're going to cover our Media All-Stars roundup this year of some of the biggest names, rising stars, executives of the year in the media, uh, media agency and media buying and strategy world. And we're going to talk about one of the most fascinating trends to me, which is celebrity-owned, celebrity-backed spirits brands. Um, Aviation Gin, of course, with Ryan Reynolds uh, and Casamigos uh, from George Clooney. There's been so many. Uh, we're going to go into that trend uh, with uh, some of our colleagues as well. But for now, first, I want to start out with Stephen Leptak, our UK bureau chief. Stephen, great to have you back to talk all things can and help us uh, figure out what's going on over there. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Grainer. You remember the last time we physically met was in Cannes. Yeah, I think the only times we've ever met were <laughs> probably, in Cannes. That's probably true. <laughs> um, let's let's. So before we get into the logistics of the delay, um, and you know, we're not going to spend too much time on this because it's it's kind of in some ways the same as last year. But last year the decision was somewhat last minute. Uh, I mean, not really, but it's like they kind of held the line and then they realized this pandemic's not going away. Things are not going to get better. France especially was was very hard hit. Um, and uh, and but but they decided they made a few decisions then. I, I don't think they really had a um, kind of a strong virtual programming uh, strategy at that point. They also just basically delayed the awards. They said, uh, no awards this year, uh, which other award shows ended up pressing forward with that. Um, but before we talk about the, what they did this year, what would you say is the biggest benefit of being at Cannes, being physically in the South of France for this festival each year? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt to me. Uh, the fact that you have the most important, the most connected people in the industry, client side and agency side, all within a mile of each other, passing each other in the street, catching up for a drink. Um, it's the networking side of Cannes is, I think, irreplaceable. And I think having two years without that is probably what hurts the industry the most. It's just so great in terms of networking potential. You, you really can't overstate the number of 
of not just people talk about deals that are made and yes people find clients there but i feel like more often people find talent mm. there like can is where you secretly squirrel away some time with the creative chief of your rival agency <laughs> to hire them away <laughs> to come be your creative chief like those are things that just don't happen uh you know unless you all happen to be in the same city but when you're talking about global creatives that's where these these conversations happen uh, yeah i mean not only is it uh, i mean the opportunity the opportunity of catching up with people that first of all you might never have met or you've only read about and trying to figure out whether or not it's somebody you want to work with in the future i i can't imagine that can is not responsible for the success of so many people in this industry just for bumping in to their future bosses uh, at the carlton terrace or uh, even the gutter bar not that i'm sure many of us go there uh, it's just the career benefit alone is is so significant as well and yeah it's the awards everyone's absolutely obsessed by and uh, i mean that goes right to the top of the network agencies they all want to win big at can lion but for me they're just i love being able to talk to people and just see people and catch up briefly yeah i remember like i'm not a big fan of boondoggles in general which you know a lot of people call can a boondoggle i will say the first year i went i did i was like i'm here to work i'm not here to party i'm not here to drink uh and the reality is that that is the, that is the work. Mm-hmm. Like the work is the getting out there, going to. You realize pretty quickly the parties are not just these raging bacchanals. That they're that that it's where you network. For one, they're kind of boring. <laughs> the parties <laughs> are generally pretty 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 staid affairs. Um, but you get there, and that's where you you're just rubbing shoulders with all these people who are literally some of the most powerful brand. And you know, and even at the gutter bar, I've I've run into CMOs of major global brands where I just like bump into them and introduce myself, and they're like, oh, you know, I'm the CMO. Of, of X brand, it's just like, well, this is kind of weird, but uh, I don't know. Let's chat. <laughs> You've been going to the wrong parties, though. I've had some fun. <laughs> some of them Steve. are good, but I mean, it's like you know, if you get invited to like you know the Edelman pool party, it is not going to be like people doing can- cannonballs or something. It's going to be a bunch of suits standing around drinking rose and talking about PR strategy. Um, but yes, there are some good ones. So let's let's. Um, Let's talk about, so the, this year they're going all virtual again. No real shock there. They've created a membership model where if you pay to go, which, what is it? It's 250 pound or 250 euro? I can't remember. Uh, it's, uh, three, I think it was $300, so about 250 pounds. Yeah, so 300 bucks, you get a one-year membership to the Lions. Uh, you'll, I think everyone will start to notice that they're starting to say Lions more and can less. Uh, tell us a, a bit about what you what you've learned about that. Well, I, I mean, they they announced, and I've been looking at this for weeks because everyone everyone was skeptical that they could they could possibly go ahead with what we're seeing happening across Europe in terms of the pandemic numbers again. So we're we're a lot of people were skeptical, but they they insisted they were going to continue. It was going to be in person, and they were going to have to do another year. And when you actually look at the the figures of essential, you can see why. It's that I mean that festival is so significant to the business, and it cost them tens of millions not running it last year. So they were desperate to have it on again this year, but there was just no way, and they couldn't hold back any longer. So what is likely to happen now, from the the conversations I'm having, it looks as though they want to build lines as a as a brand, almost a media brand, where it's not 
just dependent on can one week in can so it looks as though they're going to try and start creating more digital content and we can already see that in the the daily newsletters they're putting out and it does seem as though they want to get away from just being referred to as can lions which i think we can speculate means they're looking to to broaden yeah, and, they, and they've been doing this for a few years in the sense of like they have Dubai Links and they have these events and they own Eurobest. Uh, so they do own a bunch of properties outside of Cannes, but there's been this cachet around Cannes that I think they're starting to realize can also be a liability. And to your point, Essential, the parent company that you mentioned for Cannes, they they lost 97% of their event revenue last year. That tens of millions of dollars. It's a staggering amount. Um, so, so yeah, I would encourage everyone. We've, we've run quite a few stories about this that Stephen and Eric Oster on our agency's team have written in the last few days. Uh, so check it out. If you just look up uh, Cannes Lions and Adweek, you'll get all of our coverage. We've got industry response. Uh, we've got details on their plans. The only thing we really don't know yet is uh, much about the programming, uh, keynote speakers or anything like that, which I'm a little surprised. I think maybe they kind of had to get in, get out in front of this a little quicker than maybe they intended um, <laughs> because folks like us kept asking questions. Uh, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, so th- thank you, Stephen, for taking time to get us caught up on what's up with CAN. And like I said, I encourage everybody to check out Stephen's reporting online. And, uh, and we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully we'll all be back in the South of France next year. Cheers, Greta. All right. Take care. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when, we, when we are back, uh, we'll be back with Coim, our co-host, uh, Katie Lundstrom, uh, one of our reporters who's been covering the celebrity-owned spirits trend. Uh, and also Eric Oster, who I just mentioned, is going to join us to talk about Media All-Star. So stay with us. We'll be right back for that. back and that song you just heard actually a little musical note playing us back in uh is the adweek sound uh <laughs> this was made by a tool called massive bass uh bass is an acronym uh for something i don't quite remember what but it's from massive music as a partnership uh that they had made with a, a an audio data company and basically they promised that they can analyze your corporate brand values and then the data behind it and the and analyze their music library and determine the sound that fits perfectly with your brand so that is the one that came up with Adweek you can read about that tool just look at Massive Bass it's one word with B-A-S-S uh, on Adweek.com read uh, our colleague Shannon Miller wrote about that whole thing and you can hear the whole song if you're How curious cool. yeah it's neat and we are back with uh, our uh, co-host uh, Co-M Co so great to have you have you back and uh, to be back together as a family I, it feels weird when we're apart <laughs> together but apart uh, lonely, but never lonely. Uh, never lonely, but never alone. Um, yes, uh, it is always is good to to be with family. I love the Adweek community, uh, and it's good to to you know have um, our colleagues back with us from time to time, um, just because we are so spread out. So uh, this week we are joined by our senior staff writer of agencies, Eric Oster. Welcome back, Eric. 
Thanks. It's uh, it's great to be back on. Yeah, that's probably an ad executive. <laughs> and uh, also from Austin, uh, we have our senior writer, Katie Lundstrom. Hi, Katie. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Of course. So we're going to get into our Media All-Stars issue, which is out this week. And Eric, you were really at the helm of this week's coverage. So can you set the the lay of the land here? I mean, obviously, we had an incredibly uh, difficult and weird year. So um, you looked for people who, who stood out and helped kind of navigate through this change. Yeah, and, and and Eric remind us what when we say media, I always joke that like media means like five different things in the industry in the industries we cover. Like it can mean sound files, or it can mean journalism, or in this case, it can mean the buying and selling of media uh, and media strategy. Uh, so if you can just start by telling us what we look for in a media all star each year. Yeah, I mean, I think someone who has in this case, uh, as as Co alluded to someone who really helped clients navigate all the challenges that they faced last year. Um, and and uh, those clients leaned a lot on media agencies to help them through that, to know when they should be buying media to reach consumers and when they should um, really put their marketing and advertising on hold uh, and sit tight for a bit. And, I think all of our all-stars really made compelling cases for, in one way or another, helping their media agencies do that uh, for clients, um, whether working with them directly or really helping those agencies evolve their own offerings um, in a lot of interesting ways as well. Yeah, I feel like if if you can thrive in this past year, uh, then you can thrive anytime. <laughs> Like, you know, this is like the real cauldron uh, for, for any, I mean, for every industry, but media like just figuring out I mean, we wrote so much about the collapse of out of home right like cuz nobody was going out of their homes um and then and then that came kind of roaring back experiential of course got absolutely battered i mean you had to it, like be almost jim cramer level like take all your money out of this and put it all into this like you had to be super spry and yeah i think it says a lot for anybody who could who could come out of this past year actually like proving themselves as a, as a real talent in the industry. Yeah. And I'd love to hear Eric, you know, um, you have a, a bunch of folks on this list and what, what I find interesting is not just, you know, the leader who, you know, has to do, do his or her job, but, um, you know, the, the rising stars who maybe, um, become, you know, whether they're loud or soft-spoken or what they become the gyms, right. That people start listening to, um, and they continue to have an impact. I'm just always like, if I, whenever I hear about anyone doing anything during the pandemic, I, I'm just so impressed. So, can you tell us about, you know, some of the the impressive people um, that ended up on our list? Yeah, I'd like. To, uh, I think Rising Star is a is a great place to to start as a as a, a category um, winner. Our Rising Star was uh, Media Hub's Raquel Wilbin, who last year um, last year took on the role of integrated media supervisor. Uh, and she, over the course of five years, Raquel Wilbin went from being an account assistant to most recently becoming integrated media supervisor uh, at IPG's Media Hub. And last year, in a great example of just how anticipatory media agencies had to be 
to get out ahead of trends with consumers last year uh, and uh, and understand uh, you know what was going to happen, what was just starting to happen, rather than reacting to those trends. She worked with uh, Wyndham Hotels and Resorts and led a pivot for them last spring. Uh, initially, I, I believe they they paused their much of their their planning. She led a pivot from for them to target specifically people who are looking to travel closer to home. Uh, they were able to ascertain that people were starting to travel again. It would just look looking very differently. People taking short road trips, families looking to get away, or people just wanting to get out of the house for a weekend. And they realized it was a point of a point in the pandemic when that was going to start taking off. And it ended up working out really well for Wyndham. And the I think the statistic they gave us was that the the campaign averaged ten times more direct conversions, which is a consumer action taken. Uh, than the previous campaign they had run. And, you know, certainly uh, you look at the, a, a category that just was hit so hard, it's 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 hard to overstate how meaningful that must have been for, for that brand to be able to do that. Before we talk about the exec of the year um, and kind of go to that that more veteran end of the scale, you know, I, I, I reviewed, like like many of us, I, I reviewed the applicants this year and kind of weighed in on who should be in these all-stars. What what trends did you notice, Eric, in terms of, in terms of like the uh, – beyond like adaptability, you know, it's like beyond like the the really kind of obvious um, of, of navigating change. Uh, did, did you spot anything in terms of, of either the waves that media went through over this past year or just kind of recurring trends of, of what it meant to be – to be effective at media strategy this past year? I think that media has been changing a lot in recent years. And I think one of the trends would be just how, how much of the talent pool we saw submitted and ultimately selected were working through some of those changes and in many cases kind of reimagining internal structure and capabilities at media agencies uh, and the other, the other big trend, I guess that we only we maybe only had one or two winners um, it, in in this area, but was media agencies moving into content creation um, to further complicate everything? Um, <laughs> yeah, creative agencies want to be media agencies. Media agencies want to create creative, and brands want their in-house teams to do all of the above. exactly. <laughs> um, so I guess a couple areas, you know. It would be new or rising in importance uh, areas like e-commerce analytics, and in in that case also uh, content. One of our one of our winners was Starcom's uh, EVP head of content Al Haas. I don't know that we've had a head of content as a media all star before. I may be I may be wrong there. Let's jump to the big one. Uh, who was our media executive of the year? Our media executive of the year was uh, Sasha Savik, and he is Mediacom's U.S. CEO and has been for around nine years now. So, um, you know, certainly has had quite the run there. The uh, Mediacom was also. Adweek's Media Agency of the Year, 
recently, and certainly I don't think anyone would question that uh, Sasha played a really <laughs> important role in that as as U.S. CEO. Um, I should say Global Media Agency of the Year, but the contribution of the U.S. side of that was was a big part of that. Yeah, so so I think the this was the hardest choice we had to make. Right, was the uh, executive of the year, which I remember going into it assuming it would be like a Hunger Games situation, and that it would just be whoever survived. <laughs> like, like, like I, I literally went into it, into this process, thinking, um, yeah, just whoever barely made it through, who, whoever had the least blood, like that, like that was kind of how Agency of the Year was, right? For this past year, it was like who lost the least. Now, in the end. Our, our U.S. Agency of the Year, uh, Martin Agency, had, I think, 30% growth. So so there were exceptions. But generally across the board, at the agency level, at the brand level, it becomes a, a just a, a war of attrition, right, of who can lose the the least. Um, but in, in, in the end, it was like a pretty tough-fought thing. So, I mean, that really says a lot about I, – I think some years I've wondered – how valuable are these top level leaders? Like when it really comes down to it, like are they just filling a seat and their their underlings are getting all the work done, or are they actually really kind of leading, like really actually driving the decision making? And in this case, it seems like uh, like they were. This was not a year you could have been a casual CEO. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't think you could have been a, a casual CEO when your when your clients are calling you every uh, every single day and your employees uh, need direction and reassurance that their jobs are still going to be there. That was one of the things we noted about Mediacom in their media agency of the year entry. And Sasha played a large role in that was guaranteeing early on during the pandemic that Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be uh, a round of layoffs in the U S the way we saw with a lot of other agencies. Uh, I believe globally, Mediacom did have some, but they were able to avoid those types of wide-scale cuts in the U.S. And in fact, uh, you, you, they were even able to to grow their uh, workforce by 2.5%, Mediacom U.S., which for 2020 is just really impressive. Yeah, and, and new new business-wise, right? They, they I mean, it's a, some pretty massive numbers there right yeah absolutely um and as as a member of the leadership team contributing both to to us and to some of the the global wins that was a big part of this as well mediacom globally mediacom uh was the the top agency for new business last year according to convergence and in the us they performed uh they performed very well as well um and yeah, I'm going to pre- pretend to know all these details here, but instead I'm actually, I'm just reading from your article, <laughs> but it was like 1.6 yeah. billion in new business revenue. Whew. Yeah, and that's then right. 587 million of that in the U S like that. That's yeah, that's a, that's a hard fought year. Um, and, and just like, it's funny to think back to those days right at the beginning of quarantine, like a year ago, I guess, as we, as we record this of everything being sold out. So, so right. Like either, Imagine you're a brand, you probably have one of two problems. No one can buy your product because like people can't literally get out to to purchase it or your product is sold out worldwide and you can't keep up with the supply and you can barely even advertise it because you don't know when you'll have enough like actually on shelves. Like what a weird time. Like what a wild 
like period to be in media. Like I, I've always earnestly thought media. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this sounds offensive. I thought they had one of the easier jobs at marketing just because a lot of it's based on annual strategies and annual calendars. Uh, and it felt like once you have that emotion that you don't have to be super adaptive. Um, and, and this was a case where, yeah, wild, wild year. So to do all that, navigate all that, and still <laughs> pull off, you know, basically $600 million in U.S. new business win. Right, right. And the unqualifiable thing almost – um, that you pointed out to that jumped out to me was the fact that he was able to keep some sense of positive culture, right? So I think as a leader, uh, he not only rolled up his sleeves, as you reported, but, um, you know, he was able to kind of really stand for, for something. Uh, it's a fascinating list. There are many people on this list of, of media all-stars this year, and so we cannot do justice by all of them. I encourage everyone to check out adweek.com. Just look for media all-stars. You'll find it. And our roundup of uh, Eric and many of our other staffers have, have been interviewing these folks and writing uh, profiles with them. So check out all those and get to know. Get to know a lot of people who managed uh, challenge and change in an incredibly tough year and congrats eric to making it through this this thing is a uh is a herculean effort to put together every year so thank you so much of course uh co i don't know about you i could use some booze not, yes not really or culture or, or a, <laughs> maybe a celebrity meme i don't know we'll talk about all of that uh why don't we take a break take a sip of something and then we will be back with katie lundstrom probably heard of these brands that we're going to bring up, right? Ciroc, Skinny Girl. Yeah. And you probably know that they are, they have celebrities at their helm. So to talk more about that and how that celebrity alcohol space is changing, we have Katie with us. Hi, Katie. What's going on with celebrities? They are really uh, getting into spirits. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I was getting these pitches, right, about um, celebrity alcohol brands. And obviously, like you said, we know some of these brands pretty well. Most people know that George Clooney had a tequila brand and that he sold it for a lot of money. Well, maybe you don't know the part that he sold it for a lot of money. But, you know, we're seeing these names come up. If you pay attention to adweek.com, you probably know that Ryan Reynolds owned Aviation Gin until recently when he sold it for a good chunk of cash um, to Diageo. And, I mean, there's loads of other ones. I mean, just this year, Travis Scott partnered with Anheuser-Busch to launch a new agave-based hard seltzer that's tequila-inspired. Um, so more and more people are getting into this um, business. Uh, so I wanted to kind of reach out and see from experts whether or not that's really um, – you know, really a trend that's accelerating or just something that I was perceiving. Um, and it's definitely, I mean, all of the ex experts I spoke with um, said that, yeah, it's getting increasingly crowded. It's not, it's not just me. There actually are a lot of celebrities trying to get into the alcohol game. Um, and they all did kind of point back to George Clooney with Casamigos. Um, they, George Clooney founded Casamigos with two partners in 2013, four years later, sold it for a billion dollars, which um, obviously caught a lot of people's attention. Um, so, I mean, it was really just months after that that Ryan Reynolds bought aviation. 
and sold that um, to Diageo in a deal worth up to $610 million last year. Um, that depends on whether or not, you know, they keep selling uh, as much as they have been, and, and he still stayed on as creative lead. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of wild how many folks are getting into the game. Um, I mean, we have, uh, there are some who've been around forever, you know, I mean, Skinny Girl was actually one of the first ones. Um, Bethany Frankel launched that brand in the late 2000s before a lot of folks were really, um, before a lot of celebrities were doing anything other than just like a, uh, you know, like a, a cameo in ads or, you know, being a spokesperson or something like that. But it's really kind of shifted to be um, so that celebrities have more control over these brands. Right. And we kind of brought this up with, you know, our colleague Terry T.L. Stanley about um, celebrities with cannabis, right? And how celebrities now have apparel brands. Now celebrities are investors. And I feel like they definitely don't just want a financial stake in this, right? Because it's like, oh, look at this. Um, I can turn this around eventually. Um, but they want to really be there from the, from the beginning. They're not just going to sign on. Like I think Matthew McConaughey has one where, you know, he even directs all the shoots. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen next if there's like some kind of bubble that's going to burst. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I talked with a couple of folks um, who felt like, yeah, it's definitely getting too crowded, like that there are going to be some losers. And I mean, there always have been, right? If we didn't hear about them, they didn't do very well. Um, but like there, there's likely not enough space on the shelf for as many brands as are being launched right now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of which ones are able to have that staying power and maybe have that one of the lawyers that I, or a lawyer that I talked to for this piece actually worked with um, Ryan Reynolds and uh, George Clooney and Travis Scott um, on their, on the business deals in the background of all of this. And he said, you know, he calls that selling the brand to a big conglomerate like Diageo or Anheuser-Busch, the happy liquidity event. Um, so not everybody's going to have that day. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see which ones work. Um, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me is that we're not talking about, um, you know, a gin called Ryan Reynolds gin or, you know, it's like none of them, these are all investments, right? And then their celebrity becomes the marketing. And I think that's where, you know, you saw that somewhat with Clooney, uh, way more so with Reynolds. And then now it's becoming this pretty standard thing. I think they normalized it so much of not just being quasi entrepreneurs or being, uh, you know, acquiring companies or taking these ownership stakes or controlling stakes, but you're you're not seeing their names on it. And I think as as you know, I'm in my 40s, and so I have seen like the full wave of these things of celebrity endorsed products uh, back in the 80s were just laughably terrible and embarrassing you know, for these uh, celebrities when they would slap their name and their face on stuff. And so it went away and kind of like filming commercials as a celebrity, right, became gauche. It became like a thing that you only did in Japan um, and that you you tried to hide away forever. 
uh, and and small world. The celebrity who changed all that, uh, at least in my my mind, is George Clooney. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Clooney stopped, like he started making ads for Nespresso uh, in Europe and then eventually in America, and he normalized it. And now you see you see folks in uh, in commercials all the time. But I think it's like we ran a piece recently about a video that Ryan Reynolds made with uh, Diddy and um, and Beckham, uh, David Beckham, and each of them owns. A liquor brand, and none of them are called anything by their name. I wouldn't have known that they owned these things. Like Diddy owns Delay on Tequila, uh, Beckham owns Hague Club Whiskey. You know, it's mm-hmm. just it, it's interesting that that they're not putting their name on mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting. I, one of the folks that I talked to who's working with Post Malone on Maison Number no. Nine, a mm-hmm. rosé brand that's launching their second batch this summer, um, he kind of tied it to a like generational appetite for more authentic branding. Um, And I mean, obviously that's his pitch as someone who's invested in one of these brands. Um, But I thought that was kind of interesting to look at it through this sort of generational lens where like young consumers aren't so much concerned with like, okay, this person has sold out and is now a part of the business there they think okay this this celebrity who i like is really truly vouching for it because they've put their money into it which is just an interesting perspective i thought i mean like uh, one year ago um i don't know if you guys saw this but um there was something called quarantine wine that i ordered last april um it was by you know it's promoted by ashton kutcher and mila kunis uh, they had reached out to their friends who have a winery in Oregon, and uh, they basically made like this quarantine wine that you know would also go like give relief efforts to people who need it, like PPE and um, families on um, you know in in really hard hit areas. Uh, so I think like that's happening, and then like I'm just waiting for the likes of Lizzo to like even create her own coconut water, you know? It's like she was the face of, like, some, um, you know, liquor brand. But it's like mm-hmm. I think, it, it like, people would be interested to see, you know, someone like her have something that's not called, you know, uh, Lizzo's lemon spritzer or something. It would be, you know, like something else that she yeah. wouldn't even put put her name on. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's definitely a shift. And there's definitely space for a lot more room and to get into this business. There, it's so predominantly male. I mean, it's pretty white, but it's very, very male. Um, aside from, you know, there are a few celebrities who have wine brands, um, but none of them that have gotten very big and um, no Spears brands. So hoping to see more. <laughs> women celebrities get into the spirits spirits business if this continues to be such a booming space. Yeah, I don't want George Glooney to have like the the first celebrity sake and then be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh I, I like there's such this machismo right about the about this the the current era of this uh, celebrity booze brand it's like i always picture whether it's reynolds or any of the the david beckhams they're all just like sitting there like you know lounging back in the chair with Mm -hmm. elbow out and it's just like 
I mean, maybe machismo is not the word because it's not like they're, you know, out there living some kind of male stereotype. But I do think you're right that there's just this certain kind of swagger mm-hmm. to male swagger vibe uh, that For sure. is getting a little old. You know who I don't think gets enough uh, gets enough credit? Mm-hmm. I was just trying to look it up to remember what it was called. Danny DeVito. Does anyone know Danny DeVito's alcohol brand? Oh, I no. saw this as I was reporting and now I'm blanking on it. It it was a while ago. Uh, we wrote about it. Uh, this is, I think it was 2010. It looks like we wrote about this. Danny DeVito's uh, premium limoncello. Uh, oh, yeah. He made a limoncello, and like the the marketing for it was so um, sincere. Like like I I went into it assuming it was like a joke. Um, but his whole point was that he just loved limoncello, and it really bothered him that there weren't many limoncellos out there. Um, I personally find limoncello pretty gross, <laughs> but like, you know, I like now that's what I mean. It's like, I think <laughs> Danny DeVito was rocking the limoncello. Where, where are these other really innovative spirit? But yeah. now that said, I have no idea financially right. <laughs> how much benefit that had yeah. for him versus, you know, just being in uh, Always Sunny. But mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess the last thing that I'd say about this so I spoke with um, Christy Nordhelm, who's a marketing professor at Georgetown, just to kind of ask her about, like, are we seeing, like, is this like a pendulum swinging or, you know, are, are we going to see it like swing back, back, you know, so that celebrities are moving away from financially investing in these kinds of brands? And her take was that, no, this is like a power shift, like a a real power shift toward celebrities where they're kind of realizing that if they, you know, put their name into a good product, they are, you know, there is more risk there, but if it does really well, they can come back and ask for more money or, you know, like they have a lot of power there if they're, if their identity is wrapped up in the brand. Um, and she was saying that, you know, with these kinds of power shifts, they don't generally just like slide back. You kind of, it moves that direction and then it kind of stays there because people have realized that, yeah, this is a big opportunity and I actually do have the power. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, David and I will need to make our moonshine. <laughs> yes. There you go. Uh, <laughs> trying to think like what... What is the ad week easy pun for, uh, for it? there's got to be one. So <laughs> you can send us, tell us what booze we should create. Um, I, I will say that some friends of mine tried opening a distillery, uh, for those who've ever been curious. What a nightmare. <laughs> like, I open a brewery is my is my recommendation before you, or because distillery, I don't know, maybe this varies by city or whatever, but... Like our fire marshal ended up saying that they had to have explosion proof walls because it was because alcohol is explosive. Oh, wow. Like you know, is that I, in I mean, Alabama? The, just it ended up, yeah, okay. yeah. And so it was like millions of dollars oh, wow. to to just just in real estate versus a brewery. Mm-hmm. You don't have to <laughs> you don't have to have explosion proof walls <laughs> to start making beer. And so it's just one of those where like I thought I would, that was fascinating following the process of someone trying to open one. I would say uh, if you've got hundreds of millions of dollars sitting around, <laughs> as most of us do, uh, just go buy a brand, man. Find that one. Find that aviation gin. Go buy it up and sell it to Diageo for 600 mil. 
it it helps to be famous yeah <laughs> already <laughs> so you know it's like ryan reynolds has talked a lot about it he spoke at brand week at our event last year saying that he's like my celebrity only helps in the sense that it is media it is a media channel mm. um you know, I have access to millions of people that I can put these ads in front of, especially if I put myself in the ads. But on it, he doesn't always. I would say it's maybe like 50% of the ads he puts himself in. Um, you know, it was really just a just a visibility thing, so, you know, so you can get it out there without having to spend a ton of money. Uh, so it does require a certain level of fame. I don't think it's just savvy investment. Because, um, you know, it's like there's always stories about rock stars from the 80s and 90s who invested in, like, bought Apple when it was – five dollars or whatever and that's where they made their real money because they snorted the rest or whatever and so i I think now it really requires having that marketing savvy too Mm -hmm. but katie thanks so much and everyone should check out uh your story on adweek.com it's a great read and definitely a trend Mm -hmm. i think we're going to see more of this before we see less for sure all right well we're out of time we packed a lot a lot into this week's episode uh co always a pleasure thanks so much for for uh being here and uh i hope uh hope everything's going okay i cannot i am in like severe uh ad week co-worker withdrawal um you know what i mean co like like it's been so long yeah i don't know i mean we're like in stage gazillion of pandemic burnout but yeah i mean uh you know it's my birthday month but uh Ooh. yeah i i'm I'm here, and um, I'm happy to be part of the fam. Well, congrats to everybody for making it through this past year. Woo-hoo. It's been, I mean, not to say it's over. I'm one shot into my vaccine, so same, same. I feel like I'm, yeah, it's like we're in this weird hybrid of like, I can almost see it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're getting there. So congrats to everybody. It's been, it's been a hard, long road, and uh, we've all kind of helped each other get there. So with that, on that note, um uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great conversation. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGivney. Uh, if you've not already, please leave us a review on a- Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. It's podcast at adweek.com. Don't forget to send us your suggestions on what kind of booze Co and I should make and reap our millions of dollars on. Uh, it's going to be great. So let us know, podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week.